Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale, and we're glad you found us today. We've got a great episode lined up for you with our guest, Lisa Ferrara. She is the Senior Program Manager at WGU Labs, and they are doing some really interesting work in the space. Lisa, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And if we could just start out by letting you give our audience a little bit of background around yourself and as well uh, on WGU Labs. Sure, certainly. Um, I have 15 years experience in the ed tech industry. Um, I started out in the business analysis um, portion of that, working closely with product development, engineering, defining functional specifications for um, development teams, and just worked my way over into the product side and looking at uh, defining problems to solve for learners, for educators, for administrators. And uh, throughout the course of that work, I also um, gained a PhD and did a lot of research um, work in personalized learning and educational psychology. And uh, for the past several years, I've been partnering closely uh, with product organization develop um, product organizations to bring learning science and educational research into the product development conversation. Excellent. And give us just a little background on what WGU does for those in our audience that may not be familiar. Yeah, so broadly, WGU is an online university. Um, they have its competency-based program. So they develop um, and define the skills and competencies that students should be able to demonstrate for each program and course, and then develop their curriculum around those competencies. They have evaluators and program mentors who evaluate every student's um, artifact and deliverable against those um, skill sets and rate whether or not the student has demonstrated competency in that uh, course or program before they're allowed to move on to the next. And so um, they can ensure essentially that when a student graduates that they have demonstrable, uh, demonstrable skills and um, and competencies to show their employers. And WG Labs is an affiliate of WGU. Um, it is partially a research and development group. We have three functions. We have an accelerator team who partners with early stage startups and um, delivers program services uh, to those startups. We have a product development org that includes engineers, um, uh, learning experience designers, who are bringing in some of that learning science aspect into the experience design portion and leading our user-centered design processes. And we have a research science team that also includes data scientists um, who conduct a lot of the evaluations, um, efficacy studies, implementation studies of uh, tech startups from the accelerator group or um, with partner institutions, or as we develop products in-house, they may partner with WGU um, to run an implementation study. And there's a lot to get into there. So let me back up. Uh, and at a high level, competency-based competency programs have been on the rise in recent years. How has the pandemic accelerated things for WGU and WGU Labs? That's a great question. I, I'll speak mostly about WG Labs. Um, a lot of the work that we started, um, a focus on you know, equity and education, a focus on developing more efficacious um, programs or point solutions in educational technology. The work started long before COVID, but COVID has really served as a catalyst and an accelerant in many situations, um, such that 
when we look at the competency and the skills, you know, defining that and making sure that aligns with career and industry pathways, um, universities are now having to do that if they haven't started that progress already, because students are questioning the value of higher education and students are demanding more and they're demanding that their degree actually get them employed. And we have seen for a long time um, in the industry research and, and publications have pointed out a potential mismatch between what institutions have been offering and whether or not you know students and graduates are even employable after they get their degree. And so, um, so I'd say that it has accelerated a lot of that demand for the competency-based and skills-based um, definitions and frameworks that are happening. WGU at large is also partnering with um, IBM and some other large employers around the open skills framework um, to do something very similar as well. And, and my audience has heard me quote this stat before, and maybe you have some more uh, interesting stats, but uh, recent statistics have said about 75% of employers don't feel that college graduates are ready with the skills they need on, on day one of their work. And there's a lot of that workload that then falls on employers. Is that, when's that going to get better? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. I mean, I, I hope it's sooner than later, right? Um, but as as we're having to reconsider a lot of these, um, the value of these programs to students and to employers, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to think about innovation in education here. Um, for example, one project that WG Labs has been working on is um, they've been working with an, a social community um, and they're actually, it's an experiential learning opportunity where they the company actually um, identifies students and local programs or employers who are willing to provide internships within that program for these students. And they have rubrics and evaluations. They actually have the scaffolding um, to go through that experiential learning and, and think about the outcomes they want to gain as part of that experience. So we're starting to see some, um, some really interesting innovation in this space, but I haven't you know, I'm hoping it moves more towards a scalable solution and that institutions are starting to partner with some of their regional um, economies, some of the regional industries to also define this. Um, in our work with the College Innovation Network through labs, we're, we've also talked to several institutions who have been thinking about those local connections, those regional connections to help support um, the regional landscapes that they serve and, this, and the student population um, that they know who's needs those skills to, you know, to upskill in a way to get those jobs um, that are local. So that's a great point you bring up with experiential learning. Um, prior to COVID, that had a different meaning as well. Typically, that was on-site uh, training or project-based learning that was experiential. How has that transformed during COVID? Right. I mean, I, I don't think you'll be surprised or any of your audience will be surprised to hear this, but we've had this rapid and sudden adjustment to remote teaching um, situations. And in some cases, some institutions are able to um, still maintain or work with a hybrid solution. But for the most part, we're seeing um, this massive move to online or virtual um, opportunities. And with that brings a whole new series of challenges. How do we develop a labs-based course, for example, in a virtual world that still allows the students to practice and develop um, you know, the hand movements necessary to, to weld um, if they're in one of those programs? Um, so I think there's a lot of potential here for um, a tech innovation as well. And one, things that, one of the things I've been hearing from our member institutions um, in, in institutions we partner with at labs is that there's this need and all of a sudden 
more of a willingness for faculty staff to maybe explore or evaluate um, edtech solutions that are out there that may help them accomplish these goals where there may have been some resistance in the past um, pre-COVID, you know, to think about even taking a welding course online, there's now a necessity to do that. And so we're seeing um, a lot of the, the faculty and, the, and like I said, the staff that we've been talking to and the higher education administrators even have more of this willingness to adopt and define um, an ed tech evaluation process at their institutions so that they can think about how to do this rapid iterative testing and evaluation of different solutions out there and find the best mix for them um, to accomplish these program goals that they've largely been doing in class or in person. And that begs the question, a lot of uh, institutions were not implementing this process. Uh, what are some of the key things that maybe they were doing wrong that uh, our listeners can learn from uh, if they're looking to kind of start doing some of their own evaluation processes? Yeah, I'll say that I don't think institutions were necessarily doing this wrong to start with. I think it was just balancing the needs and the demands. Um, at the time, you know, they were able to provide some in-course experiences um, or, you know, have students come on campus and use specialized resources or equipment. And now that's suddenly gone. And so the need has, has shifted quite a bit. And then um, we're also starting to see when we conduct our user-centered design processes with our learning experience design team at labs, talking to students, they're also demanding, um, you know, better designed educational tools. Um, now that they've had this experience and they, um, especially by the time they get to higher ed, they've used so many different solutions in many different ways. And not all the time are those, um, or not every time are those solutions adopted and implemented um, in a way that would really impact their learning outcomes at the end of the day. And so they're starting to demand a more thoughtful approach to the integration and adoption of these edtech solutions as well. So I think for best practices, maybe going forward, it, I would say always start with the outcomes, define what are the outcomes or the impact I want this product to have on my learners and why. And then that, should inform the considerations for implementation of the edtech and also help you to identify the specific features of an edtech solution that you absolutely need to adopt. So for example, going through that process, you may think um, if I'm going to bring one of these lab-based courses online, like we were talking about earlier, um, I might need an entire solution that has a virtual lab that students can you know, conduct the entire microbiology experience in a virtual world. Um, but if we start the outcomes for a specific class, we may find that, well, the outcomes are really that students understand the value of experimentation and the scientific method. And at that point, do we really need an entire virtual world for them to explore that in? Or are there smaller, more lightweight or cost-effective ways um, that we can find tools to sort of scaffold that process and knowledge development without having to purchase um, an entire program upfront? I love that. Always start with the end in mind, which educators are used to doing in the traditional setting. And really, it's just not forgetting to apply that same uh, principle to to doing things online. And I know it's enticing with all the new ed tech out now uh, to do things just because they look cool, but really think about uh, what is the purpose and what is the impact on the student outcome. Um, right. to, that, to that point, I think we've also seen uh, in adult learners as well as uh, students, this uh, shift over 2020, where in the fall, in the spring, sorry, when this first kind of uh, took place and uh, educators were moving towards online very quickly and without much professional development, there was a lot of um, 
empathy, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of understanding. And it seems as though this has quickly turned from the summer uh, to the fall that the expectations have gone up exponentially uh, to where uh, our students are now expecting more and uh, our educators are trying to deliver. But have you seen that same kind of evolution going into now almost next spring as far as, uh, you know, the expectations continuing to rise? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think you and maybe your listeners have seen even that there are some lawsuits pending from um, saying, you know, that their educational experience has been subpar with this move to online learning. Um, And it's interesting, when we started the College Innovation Network, um, again, something that had started pre-COVID, but by the time um, we got the network up and running and did our iterative needs assessment process with our member institutions, Um, In July is when we actually coalesced and converged upon our network priorities. One of those four priorities that the network was very interested in addressing is faculty readiness for remote teaching and learning. And um, at the at first, my my team and I at WD Labs thought maybe this this has a shelf life. Maybe by fall, people are going to feel more comfortable with this or they're going to um, develop that confidence in adjusting their teaching methodologies and approaches to this online world. And this won't necessarily be as much of a concern, you know, going into spring. Um, that it has not been the case. I'm happy, <laughs> sad and happy to report at the same time that our network priority will still uh, apply to next year as well. But um, what we're seeing is that uh, faculty may be experiencing all these different tool sets and exploring them, um, but they're not necessarily gaining uh, that confidence. Um, and they're not necessarily finding the right tools that they need to move their class fully online in a way that's satisfactory to them and the learners. So um, so this is an issue and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Um, I think one thing that could really help is by leveraging these different um, models for adapting these online teaching methodologies rapidly. And some of our institutions in the College Innovation Network have been doing like train the trainer models. So they've sent a handful of their faculty to professional development workshops. And then that faculty group is then um, hosting, you know, um, campus wide trainings for other faculty members to learn from them. Um, That's one way uh, some of our schools have tried to scale that. Some of our other schools are looking at adopting um, ed tech solutions like Inscribe, which is a community um, sort of portal or platform that leverages AI to uh, produce common responses. And and that's a way to sort of create like a, a support group for faculty who just need to go and share lessons learned or tips and tricks that they are developing along the way. But they have that community support as they're making this rapid adjustment. Because I think um, one thing that we tend to forget when we ask faculty and programs to go online overnight is that there's a gradual evolution in developing those skills. And so we shouldn't expect them to become experts in remote teaching methodologies this semester or even by the time next spring rolls around. Um, these are, you know, This is a long gradual on-ramp and I think we need to be empathetic to that iterative testing process that I mentioned earlier as well. Some things that they tried last spring may not have worked well, um, but it's good that they evaluated because now they can refine that approach for fall. They should be doing that same process this semester and in preparation for spring, thinking about, did this tool meet my needs? Did this approach meet my needs? Um, did, you know, did learners get what they needed to out of this particular experience? Um, so I hope that faculty are, are not feeling that burnout and that they're still able to adopt this iterative test and evaluation process and that, um, you know, uh, that they give themselves some leeway and some 
um, some clearance to sort of continue that development throughout the course of the next year. That's really exciting. And, and it's a really great opportunity for professors to practice what they preach, because oftentimes in the college setting, we're trying to teach students how to learn, teach them how to become lifelong learners and uh, continuously learn. And now this is a, a great opportunity for our instructors to, uh, to continue to learn as well, as inevitably these technologies will evolve and change semester after semester as well. So I know they're, they're facing that initial learning curve, a lot of them right now, but uh, hopefully it planes out at some point in 2021 or the near future. But um, it is not going to be, a, I've learned how to do online uh, instruction now, and I don't have to learn, you know, year after year, it really is uh, going to be continuous. So, um, and I love what you said about the support groups, because that's so important as well, uh, as for these instructors to not feel like they're alone in this battle, because they are absolutely not. Um, everyone is facing these same challenges. So that's great that uh, there are programs out there that, that help facilitate that support from their peers. Um, to shift gears just a little bit, um, into research, because uh, this is, while online learning has been around for a, a long time, a number of decades, um, there is uh, not an abundance of research in some of these new digital teaching strategies, and, and you guys are doing some things research-wise uh, to, to help bring that to the forefront and implement it. Just talk to us in general about the research that, that you have done. Right. I think that is one of the unique aspects of WG Labs um, in particular, is that they are bringing together this opportunity for user research to meet market research, to meet educational research. And that's great to inform the problem to be solved, but then you should also validate that along the way. And as part of our user research process and user-centered design process, we you know, conduct prototypes and um, get feedback on those from potential users. But then there's often this step that a lot of companies don't invest in or um, maybe decide it's not worth it at the end or don't know how to go about doing it. But it's always circling back and making sure that what we develop um, you know, impacts learners in the way we expected it to. And those are through the efficacy studies and evaluation processes. Um, WG Labs has that in place um, with the partners that, um, that decide to partner with WG Labs. It's something that we are committed to doing as part of the College Innovation Network as well. So as our member institutions um, agree to pilot um, some of these edtech solutions that we are evaluating and sourcing for them, um, part of that agreement, uh, both from the vendors that are participating in this and the institutions, is that we conduct a very thorough evaluation on that edtech pilot to see what was the impact and what did we learn from an implementation perspective. And we're also committed to publishing those publicly because without this ubiquitous um, efficacy studies um, and efficacy results available uh, throughout the industry and on every single tool that's out there. Um, having research like this that's readily available for consumers, whether or not they're in the College Innovation Network, can really inform their strategy and their game plan, plan going forward for, for thinking about the right tools to adopt for the right learning experiences. That's great. And I know that there have been some recent uh research reporting by our friends over at the Heckinger Report um, that, that kind of line up with this. Could you tell our audience a little bit about um, that kind of research? Right. So that is a great article. I'd recommend um, anyone take a look at that if you're interested in the current state of um, efficacy results and ed tech in the industry. Um, but essentially, they found that the majority of um, efficacy results or claims that were being made about products uh, regarding student impact or learner outcomes um, were at best 
um, stretched <laughs> from the truth. Um, uh, many times they are not replicable, um, which is uh, kind of scary when we think about that because we need uh, to be able to demonstrate those findings are replicable to know that a product is truly efficacious or not. And I understand that's a very rigorous evaluation stage to get to with product design and development, but it's something that we should really aim for if we're thinking about developing products that truly meet learners where they are and helping them essentially, you know, get to that ultimate goal of student success, um, however that's defined for that specific learner and by that specific learner. So, um, right, so that report um, basically brought up the fact that many, uh, although consumers have started to demand results and evidence that products are impactful over the years, I've seen that increase um, quite a bit since about 2013, I think. Um, we, we are not seeing those results. And I think it was in 2013, but Pearson had actually committed to publicly um, publishing on the results of their products. And it took them several years, to, a couple of years to get that program up and running. Um, they went through a very rigorous evaluation and, um, and reporting effort. Um, and that sort of kicked off an interest across the board with different companies. Um, Macmillan Learning came out with a really interesting, you know, efficacy and learning science program where they they made sure that they were designing products up front with a research um, based foundation and framework and then as they built out that product their new platform achieve they went through a series of um, evaluation stages and research stages um, that was that was reviewed by a research council that they had um, developed but essentially undergoing that external peer review at each stage of the process so they went from a beta um, you know, testing stage where they put out a beta product um, to partner institutions and then evaluated uh, the implementation and the outcomes to see what is the most ideal implementation or the way that faculty are going to be using the features in this product and that informed the next stage. So by the time we get to, you know, a full-fledged um, product that has been released, they know that they've been evaluating at each stage. And so by the time they get there, they should have an efficacious product um, with great results around uh, flipped learning effects and things like that. Um, so that's something that WG Labs does as well as um, through our user-centered design process with our learning experience designers. They do that problem discovery upfront. They bring in the educational research and learning science to think about what are the appropriate ways to address this learner need or this learner challenge. And then um, as we develop out prototypes, we always bring back learners and faculty, potential end users to weigh in on those prototypes. And, um, and then our research science team and our data science team do a great job conducting an evaluation on the efficacy of the product development as well. That's amazing. And, and long overdue, um, is there a governing body for this yet? Or is that something that you think we'll see in the future, a, a real third party kind of clearinghouse for this research? Mm, so I have, um, there are some, you know, clearing houses that uh, are, serve as great references. There's a What Works Clearinghouse, um, obviously, that shares out uh, some impactful products and research results. Um, and then there are these different groups that are developing programs to help certify along those different stages of development and design and research that I mentioned earlier. So for example, Digital Promise has just developed um, a certification program to certify products that actually have a very clearly defined and um, uh, accessible evidence base going into their product design. Um, so there are different, um, I think, I think there's always more opportunity to have oversight into this work, um, but really the best 
best thing is for consumers to keep demanding evidence and, and keep demanding that they can see results and get reports and have access to the data um, to look at it for themselves. Absolutely. Uh, I want to circle back around to the accelerator team. Um, talk to us about what it's like working with these early stage companies and, and what is the the main value, I guess, that you, you add, I'm sure they are in need of a lot of things, um, but, but what are the things you kind of see reoccurring that, oh, wow, they're really glad that they worked with you because of X? Um, I'll say that, so I'm not technically part of the Accelerator Group, but I have had some, um, some exposure to them through the College Innovation Network and then my partnership within um, WG Labs, obviously, as well. Um, one thing that's really unique about our Accelerator is that it's focused on program services. And so what that means is typically incubators or accelerator groups will um, do some consulting work with early stage startups. They will, um, and kind of the end of that work or that partnership is a pitch day where they essentially coach um, the founders to create a pitch and then they get some investors in a room and that is the culmination of the accelerator program. Um, but our program, I think, is taking a much more um, responsible approach, if I can say that, where they are actually, um, they've developed a social impact framework, and that is key to any of the um, the products and, and the vendors that they partner with. So they're looking for, does this product impact all learners positively? What is the evidence there? They're looking at um, what are real world pilots or partnerships we can do with institutions and learners to demonstrate the effectiveness of this solution or this tool. And, um, and so some of those services result in um, some of those efficacy studies or um, pilot partnership opportunities that our research scientists will lead and partner with. Some of that results in more of an incubation-like um, service where some of our designers or our writers might jump on board and help develop out like another module um, or another part of, of the product um, to just sort of get it like, you know, 100% away over the finish line. Um, they may provide some assessment consulting or development as well. Um, but essentially they're looking at, does this product solve a specific need in the marketplace? And what is the evidence base going into this product? Have they actually thought about the learner outcomes um, and the learner needs that they need to solve? Um, have they you know, been on uh, campuses and have they met with uh, potential buyers and users? And what, is it, what sort of evidence are they pulling from sociology, psychology, um, learning science to make sure that their product is going to be as useful as possible? That's amazing. And kind of on the learn, learning science uh, track, we talked about faculty, professors, professional development, how, and we've talked a little bit about students and their demands going up. What advice would you have for students that are tech savvy, but now kind of being thrown into 100% online learning or uh, the majority of a hybrid learning being online um, and how they can get the most out of that experience from a learning uh, science standpoint? That's a great question. Um, I'll say that a lot of my research um, focused on self-regulation and scaffolding or triggering or promoting some of those metacognitive processes um, that are beneficial for learning and knowledge development in particular. And um, so my suggestion is to think about um, integrating some of those metacognitive um, opportunities for yourself. So uh, one easy way to do this is to think about um, and plan for a, a reflection opportunity or process 
along your learning path or your learning journey through whatever course or assignment that you're conducting. So if you're not specifically asked to stop and reflect um, what you're working on or why or how, try to develop that or think of um, think of uh, appropriate places within that, that learning experience to do it for yourself. I think that's going to give learners um, a couple of opportunities for success here. Um, one is they're going to be reflecting on the tools that they are using and if it's helping them reach their goal or their end product that they need to be. Um, they're going to be uh, hopefully having the opportunity to reflect on their emerging understanding of their learning a new complex topic or um, reading you know, maybe two pieces of information. If they're doing research, they might find out, you know, taking a step back and realizing, oh, you know, the article I just read conflicts with the one I read two hours ago. Um, who's right, or why would they conflict, or why, why is there a disagreement between the two? Um, but just thinking about those opportunities to pause and reflect and think about how am I doing? Am I getting to where I wanna go? And do I understand what I'm being asked to do or what I'm reading or what I'm trying to develop um, as part of this assignment or produce in this assessment? That is great advice. All right, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. So we, we end with the grand finale question. Uh, you know, what does the future hold uh, post pandemic, whenever that may be? Um, we've seen online learning shift from a supplement in many in many cases to the core or a big part of the core. Uh, do you see that fading away a little bit or going strong or, or where is the future going to take us in 2021 and beyond? Yeah, I love this question. I love to be a fortune teller. Um, not to say, um, I don't, you know, I don't think anyone has the definitive answer there. We've seen a wild card of a year, quite frankly. Um, but I don't think that online learning or virtual learning or distance learning is going to go away. Um, I think what we're going to see is an adoption and more robust development of these programs um, going forward. Uh, quite frankly, there have been large groups of students who have been underserved for far too long. And I think that building in this flexibility for delivery of education and resources and experiences is going to meet some of those needs and some of those learners where they are. And so I hope that this doesn't go away because it is creating opportunities to think about how can we better serve our learners coming into our institutions or maybe who are just looking for those upskilling opportunities while they're working and they're trying to balance their careers with their family um, with those um, those potential educational goals as well. There you have it. I'm right there in agreement with you. As my listeners know, I really believe this is the beginning of the golden age of e-learning, but really the golden age of learning, uh, where we're going to take all these tools and it's not going to be online versus on-site. It's going to be what's the best online we can do? What's the best on-site we can do? And really think with the end goal in mind. So Lisa, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And to my audience, thank you so much for joining another episode. Be sure to check out some past episodes um, and leave us some comments and reviews. Uh, Lisa was uh, someone that had commented on a uh, past episode getting user information and we loved what she said and we had to have her on the show so uh, if you're listening out there please uh, interact with us and we'd love to have you on the show as well uh, so everyone please have a safe holiday and uh, we'll see you next time always keep learning